The book of Hebrews, chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you, I do invite you always to bring a Bible, some version, and, and follow with us as we go through the text. Hebrews, chapter 1, is where we're going to be, so you can open your Bible and find your place there. I think there is probably no more important question one could ask than the question, who is Jesus Christ. Who is he? The fact that he was an extraordinary man who significantly impacted history is beyond dispute, simply by virtue of the fact that people all over the world this morning are still talking about him. The basic facts of his life where and when he lived, how he died, are well-established historically. No one anymore disputes that. He's not a fictional character that people invented. He really lived and died and somehow changed world history. But who is he? Who is he? If you remember, Jesus asked his own disciples that very question. One of them records that for us, one who was an eyewitness. Jesus asked them, who do, who do people say that I am? What are they saying about me? Who do they say that I am? Some say, you're, you're John the Baptist, or you're a prophet, you're a great prophet. And then remember, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And that really is the question. Who do you say that he is? If you remember that other scene in the gospel accounts, when Jesus was with his disciples, he was on the, in this boat in the night in the Sea of Galilee, and it, and it says there a fierce gale wind arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, and Jesus was asleep. And the disciples were terrified. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you care what's happening? And you remember that scene? He, he just got up, he rebuked the wind and said, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And then it says, They were very much afraid. And they asked this question. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What a pointed question. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is he? Hebrews chapter 1, where we're at, gives perhaps the most definitive and extensive answer to that question. Who is he? When he asked his disciples that, Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's a right. You're the son of the living God. But what does that mean? What does that mean? The writer of Hebrews, probably like no other place in the Bible, tells us and shows us what it means. The book of Hebrews, or really the letter, the sermon letter of Hebrews, holding fast to Christ, that's 
the title for this whole letter because the author, his pastoral purpose, that's his pastoral purpose in this, we call it a sermon letter. It's really written like a sermon in written form. That's his theme. Don't, don't fall away. Don't drift. Don't turn away to anything else. That's his pastoral exhortation. But he grounds that exhortation in this massive weight of doctrine, theology of, about Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And the summary of that doctrine is Jesus is better. <laughs> to say it really simply, he says that a dozen times. Jesus is better. He is superior to everything, and he's superior as the final and complete revelation of God and all his purposes. There's nowhere else to turn. Where are you going to turn? Jesus is the final, complete revelation of God and his purposes. Jesus is better. Don't turn anywhere else, especially for these original readers here. Don't turn back to the law, to the old covenant, because all of that was just pointing to Jesus, right? All of that was fulfilled in Christ. That's the purpose. Don't turn back there. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Now, the reason Jesus is the final, complete, climactic revelation of God and his purposes is because of who he is. Who is he? Who is he? Well, that's what the writer gives us in the first part of his sermon letter. Before giving us the content of what God has spoken and revealed in his son. We're going to see that. What did God speak through his son, this final revelation? Before giving us that, he gives the foundation of the superior person of the son. This is who he is. This is who you, you need to see who he is to know why he is the final revelation. So that's how he starts. Let, let me read it again. I promise this one last time I'll read this, these first four verses. They're so rich. He just launches right into us and confronts us with the superiority of Jesus. Like I said, there's no greetings. There's no personal salutations here. It's just, here he is. So let, let's read it again. I'll put it on the screen or just follow in your Bible these first four verses. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers by the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world who being the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature upholding all things by the word of his power Having made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. That's who he is. That's it. So we call these first four verses the prologue, this literary introduction to his sermon. We looked at those three weeks, just the riches of this. Here's my one line summary of who he says who, who the Son is in these first four verses. He is the eternal, that is the divine Son, who has become the exalted Son, the heir of all things. That's who he is. He is the eternal divine Son. He has always existed. He is 
God, he shares the divine nature with God. He is God, the exact representation of his nature, the radiance of his glory. That's who he's always been. And now he's become the exalted son, the heir of all things. So when we say, who is Jesus? And Peter said, you're the son of the living God. You're the son of God. By that, we mean he's God, the son. He's not lesser than God. He's God, the son. He shares the divine nature, the exact representation. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. That's who he is. And now he is the exalted son. That is, he's come into the fullness of who he's always been, the sonship at God's right hand. He's the heir of all things by means of him becoming man and dying and being raised. He is now the exalted God, man, the son And as such, verse 4, this is a transit, he has become much better than the angels. (laughs) He compares the son to the angels, not only because they are the most majestic of beings outside of God, and Jesus is better, but where he's going in his argument, because of their role in mediating the law, the old covenant given to Moses. That revelation came through them with glory, but now this final revelation is in the Son who has so much more glory. He's so much better. So pay attention. Pay attention to what God has said in the Son. That's his argument. That's why he's comparing him to angels. The revelation in the Son is superior because it's final, climactic. So now he goes, verses 5 through the end of the chapter, verse 14, and he compares the Son to angels. He wants us to get this. He is so much greater than angels. As I said last week, he's not an angel. He is superior, greater, better than the angels because he is God, very God, who is now the exalted Son. So that's what he does. Now let's follow him. Verses 5 through 14 is he's going to show how much greater the son is than angels. Let me read. I'm going to read all of this. I'm going to put it on the screen. Also, you can follow there or in your Bible and listen to him. Now he's going to quote the scriptures. We call it the old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. He's going to quote seven passages. Now in my Bible, maybe yours does this too. If you're reading and you find words that are all in capital, they're capital, every letter is a capital letter. Those are quotes from the Old Testament. So as I read it, you look in the screen, you see, why are those, why is that all in capitals? Those are showing, these are actual direct words out of the Old Testament, out of the scriptures. So just pay attention. Let me read it, starting in verse 5. He's going to show now that the Son is much better than the angels. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all become old as a garment. As a cloak, you will roll them up. As a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same. Your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? The son compared to angels. That's what he's doing in this whole section. The son compared to angels. And again, he's going to get to his application. Because if that old covenant revelation came through angels, how much greater is what has come in the son, who is so much greater than the angels? He's the completion of all that. But he takes the time to show us who the son is. The nature of the son by quoting Old Testament scripture, the Hebrew scriptures. He strings together seven passages of scripture. And he just strings them together. He doesn't give us explanation here. He's not expositing these texts here. He's just stringing. It's really the overall effect that he wants as you read this and you get a sense that the glory of the sun over the angels. So seven passages to show the superiority of the sun to angels. What he stated in those first four verses about the sun is now echoed in these passages. You'll see the connections. Now, as I read those, it seems that the author here, he gives these passages in three groups of two. So there's three pairs of scripture. There's two, 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 and then there's a climactic final one that brings this whole argument to a conclusion. So three groups of two. So I, I just want to look at it that way. We'll just look at it briefly. This is a lot of verses to take, but he's just quoting scripture. As I said, the overall effect is what he wants. Not that we understand every detail here. So, so let, we want to look at them that way. Now, we actually started last Sunday. We, we began a little bit of this argument of the author by his quoting Old Testament scripture. So here's, here's the first pair. And I'll just give a title for each of them and a, and a couple points under them. So here's, here's the first, the son's unique status. The son's unique status. And here are the two scriptures he uses. Here's the pair of scriptures. Psalm 2, 7, 2 Samuel 7, 14. So that's verse 5. So he goes back, quotes those. So we looked at that, some detail last week of how he uses those to refer to the son. And what he's saying here is God God speaks directly to the one who has a unique relationship as God's son. He never said this to angels. You are my son. Today, I have become your father. I have begotten you. He never says that. He's referring to the enthronement of the son. On that day, he says, you are my son. In this unique sense that he has come into the completion of or the fulfillment of his sonship as the God man. So he speaks. He has a unique status. He only says this to him. So we, we saw that. I won't linger there. You can listen to that. Here's the next group. Number two. That's where we pick it up. The angel's subservient role. 
So remember, all through this, he's comparing, contrasting the Son with the angels. So the Son has this unique status as the Son. And then he shows the angels' subservient role to the Son. Here are the two scriptures he uses. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Psalm 104, verse 4. So that's the pair of scriptures he's using to show the angels' subservient role. I'm going to give you a summary, one-line summary of each of those scriptures. Here's the first one, what he's saying by quoting Deuteronomy 32, 43. God commands the angels to worship the Son at his exaltation or enthronement. God commands the angels to worship the Son at the Son's exaltation and enthronement. This is verse 6. Now look at it. A couple things I do want to explain here that might be confusing. It says again, when he brings the firstborn. Now that language might trip us up a bit. Again, he's using that metaphorically. Jesus was never born ultimately, that is eternally. He's always existed. But just like he used in verse 5, the language of begotten, I've become your father. That's the language to give birth. He's using it metaphorically. It's his enthronement. When he brings the firstborn, he's using that language as a title for Jesus to speak of his preeminence. And it's fitting because he's talking about Jesus' inheritance. Who receives the inheritance? Well, the firstborn. So he is the prototokos, the firstborn. Not that he was born in any eternal sense or was created, but that he is preeminent. It's his title. And he inherits all things. So he's just using it metaphorically for the preeminence of this one. He is the firstborn of everything because he receives the inheritance. So don't trip on that. And he says, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let the angels work. So we ask, what, when is that? What does he mean? Might be a little confusing, but he's going to tell us in chapter 2 what he means by that. The world here, when he brings him into the world, he's, he's not thinking, I don't think, he's not thinking of his incarnation when he was born of the Virgin Mary, though that is true. And he's not really thinking of his second coming. Again, the whole context, he's thinking of the enthronement of the Son, his exaltation, his ascension, exaltation. And the world that he comes in, that the Father brings him into, is this heavenly world that is coming. It's right now, the heavenly world where Jesus is right now enthroned at the Father's right hand. And that's the world that will come, we're waiting for. You know that because in, he uses a, a very specific world word, excuse me, for world, oikomene, here. And he, he does it again in verse, chapter 2, verse 5. So look at there, and he's tipping you off what he means. For he did not subject to angels, same word, the world to come concerning which we are speaking. We're speaking about that. Yes, we are back in verse 6 of chapter 1. We're talking about this world, this heavenly world inhabited by God's people. And that world will ultimately come. So when, when Jesus enters that world as king, his enthronement, God commands the angels to worship him. That's what he's saying here. And he quotes, I think, the best primitive Hebrew text of Deuteronomy 32, 43. I won't explain all of that. It's way too complex. <laughs> but he's quoting this, let all the angels of God worship him. 
worshiping. He calls the angels to worship. The, the context of Deuteronomy 32, by the way, that's Moses' song. And at the end of that song, he is celebrating God's triumph because he's brought salvation to his people and has triumphed over his enemies. That's the context. And as the author reads that, he knows that that salvation has been brought in Jesus, God's final revelation. Jesus has triumphed. Jesus has brought this complete revelation. So it applies to, ultimately, to Jesus, that command, let all the angels of God worship him. That's how he's using it. The author sees the exalted son as the one through whom God has accomplished salvation. Now, we have, a, we have a little glimpse of that in the book of Revelation. Remember that scene? If you read the book of Revelation, it can be confusing, I know. But John, is, John the author, he's given a, a vision of the throne room of this world. <laughs> this world that's presently unseen, inhabited by God and his beings and God's people, this world's got, he's given a scene of the, the throne room of God and, and the worship. And you remember this really dramatic scene where no one's able to open the book. We have a song that we sing about this. No one's able to open the book and there's weeping. And, and then they said, don't weep. And then there appears, remember, the lamb, the line of Jude, the lamb who's been slain has overcome so as to open the book. He's overcome. He is exalted now. He's accomplished his work and he's overcome. And what, what, what do you see? The angels worshiping the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb to receive glory and honor and blessing and riches and power. There, there's your scene. That's what he's describing here. When God brings him into this world, he commands all the angels to worship That's really remarkable. He receives worship from the most majestic of creatures. Don't worship angels. Angels worship him. How much greater. And then he parallels that by contrast with the angels. Verse 7 of the angels. This is uh, the other text here. Of the angels, he says, Psalm 104, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Here's the point. Angels are merely servants at God's disposal and for his use. Yes, they're supernatural beings. As I said last week, we'd be terrified if one were to appear in their splendor. But at the end of the day, they are merely servants at God's disposal and for his use. And they worship the Son. God, God gives angels here the status of servants, not Son, only to one, he said, you are my son. To angels, you are servants. And he sends them. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That is, they are like wind and fire. Just like wind and fire are instruments of God, servants of God for his purpose. So are angels. That's who angels are. We thought on that a little bit last week. Created beings created for the purpose of serving at God's beckoning. Created for worship of the Son, and for service. And that's all they are. Jesus is greater. The Son is greater. So, again, just note, 
that the angels worship the sun. These majestic beings are created, one purpose, to worship him. So should we. <laughs> right? Do you? Do you worship the sun? God commands the angels to worship him. We see all through the Gospels and into the book of Revelation, the worship of Jesus, the Son. Do you worship him? This is what sets Christianity, the Gospel, Christianity, apart from other religions. Lots of other religions will honor Jesus. He's a good man. He's a great teacher. He's a good prophet. Right, I was listening to this, uh, listening and reading a biography of Thomas Jefferson. And you might know that Thomas Jefferson really admired Jesus and his teaching and cut out of his Bible everything that was supernatural. He didn't worship Jesus, he just admired him as a teacher. Other religions do, other cults do too. The question is do you worship him as God? Because that's who he is. So that's the first or second pairing. <laughs> Let me get to the third one. Here's the heading for this next two pairs of scripture, next pair of scripture, next two scriptures. The son's eternal sovereignty. The son's eternal sovereignty, verse 8 through 12. These are longer quotations. But notice, notice the beginning of verse 8. He's still contrasting with the angels. Verse 7, it says, of the angels, he says, verse 8, but of the Son, he says. So the angels, he said, your servants, but of the Son, here's what he says. And now he doesn't give any more contrast with angels. He just gives the nature of the Son. Who is he? Here's the two scriptures he uses, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, and Psalm 102, verses 25 and 26. You'll see our author loves the Psalms. He believes the Psalms spoke of Jesus, and they do. Psalm 45 and Psalm 102. So here's my summary of his use of Psalm 45. The Son, who is himself God, enjoys eternal sovereignty based on his obedience. The Son, who is himself God, the eternal Son, enjoys now this new, unique, eternal sovereignty based on his obedience, namely his death. Now, th this is the main thing the author has been going at in this whole opening of his letter. This is the central truth that he's trying to say, that this eternal Son, who's always existed as a Son, has become the exalted Son. And so he goes to Psalm 45, and what a brilliant use of this psalm. This psalm is really breathtaking in what it says. So Psalm 45, if you go back and read it, Psalm 45 is a, we call it a royal psalm because it's in honor of the king of Israel. Think of a king like David. The psalm is in honor of the king who has been exalted by God because of his righteousness. But surprisingly, the psalm addresses the king as God. Do you see it? Look at verse 8. Your throne, O God, is 
forever and ever. Your throne is talking about the king. (laughs) Now, in that original context, he's going to use it metaphorically that the king represents God to the people. But what the writer sees rightly, we see all through the Old Testament, this has a more unique and greater application to the son who is himself God. Your throne Oh, God is forever and ever. That's who he's addressing. He's addressing the son ultimately with the title God. There it is. That's as clear as any place in the Bible. Who is the son? He is God. And God is addressing him as God. (laughs) This is how the Bible works. When he says your scepter is the scepter of his kingdom, your throne, he's talking about the the rule of the son, the, the sovereignty of the son. You've been anointed with the oil of glad, oil of glad. Again, this is the enthronement of the son. He's been anointed with this oil of gladness above your companions. The companions are us. His people. Delighting in the exaltation of the son who is God. And he is anointed. Notice notice there in verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. So he's called God and he has a God. You see it? Again, this is how the language of the Bible works. This is, as I said a couple weeks ago, the foundations of our doctrine of the Trinity, one God in three persons, are right here. They're right there in the Old Testament. He is God who has a God. We don't believe in multiple gods. There's one God. The son shares the divine nature. So because you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, God, your God, has anointed you. So his exaltation is on the basis of his, his loving righteousness, hating lawlessness. Now, the writer of Hebrews is going to show us that in the life of Jesus, he was obedient. He was faithful in his testing and becomes the source of our eternal salvation. That's who he is. So again, notice the contrast. While angels are merely servants, the Son exercises an eternal kingship and sovereignty. He is God. And then, and, he says, look at verse 10, and, just goes right on. Here's my summary of his quote of Psalm 102. The Son is the creator, and he is eternal in contrast to the created world. The Son is the creator, And he is eternal in contrast to the created world. You see it? And, verse 10, you, Lord, in the Old Testament, that's the word Yahweh. And he's applying it to the Son. You say, well, how how can he do that? How does he read the Bible? How does he read the Old Testament? But the Son has already been called... God. He's already told us who the Son is. The Son is the exact representation of His nature, the radiance of His glory, the Creator. He shares in the divine nature. Therefore, the New Testament writers feel a great freedom to take text in the Old Testament that refers specifically to Yahweh and apply them to the Son. There's at least a dozen places in the New Testament where the New Testament authors do this. 
because they know who he is. Our author is not trying really to prove the deity of Jesus. He's already stated it. It's true. He is. This is who he is. And therefore, those texts, he can apply directly to the son. He just the scripture just called him God. So then he just reaches back on this text on creation and applies it directly to the son as the creator. As eternal. Do you see it? You, Lord. So here's another title for the son. God, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation and the heavens are the works of your hands. He just attributes creation to the son. Now, his main point is not creation, though he it's true, but that the son is eternal and the creation is not. Because he goes on to say what you created, they will perish. The heavens and the earth, they will perish, but you remain like a cloak, you will roll them up as a garment. They will all be changed, but you are the same. Your years will not come to an end. Do you see the contrast? Yes, he's the creator. But what he's created is not eternal. He's eternal, but the creation is temporal. It's, he compares it to a garment that you wear. Clothing. And you wear it enough, it wears out, and then you have to change it. Throw it away. Change it. That's what creation is like, he says. You laid the foundation, but it's going to perish. It's like a garment that's being worn out, and soon you're going to change it. Now, he doesn't go on to say what he changes it with. The rest of the Bible does. He's going to create a, a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to recreate this heavens and the earth. But this old, original creation will Perish, it'll be changed. And do you know that? I hope you know that. History, as we know it, has an end. It has an end. It had a beginning, and it has an end. And he's bringing it to an end. This created earth and universe are going to be rolled up and changed. It's going to perish. Don't put your ultimate hope in this creation, right? I know, I know so much talk today on whether it's climate change or global warming or save the planet. Now, I think we should be good stewards of what God has given us, right? Shouldn't be reckless. So those things aren't wrong to uh, pay attention to and, and maybe think on or be engaged in in some way? What's it mean to be responsible? Those are good discussions to have as good stewards. But how many people, that becomes their life ambition? We're going to save the planet. You're not. You're not. You're not going to. It's going to burn up, right? It's going to change it. Don't invest your life... And what is just going to be gone. But what's eternal. What he brings. So do you know this? Do you, do you order your life accordingly? What do you invest in? It's going to be changed. And notice who's going to change it. Do you see that? 
He's, he's not just comparing the eternal nature of the son with the temporary nature of creation. But he says in verse 12, right at the middle, as a cloak, you will roll them up. He's going to change it. What he began, he's going to bring to an end. And create something glorious. <laughs> I hope you know that. That's who he is. He is eternal in contrast to the created world. Now, that brings him to his conclusion. Okay, So those are the three pairs of Old Testament text he's quoted to show his superiority to angels. That he is God, the Son, the Creator, the Sustainer, but now his conclusion. What's his conclusion? The Son's exaltation. This, this is his main point. It's his main point in the letter. It's what he's been driving at. So, of course, this is where he's going to end. Do you see it? Verse 13. But notice how he closes. It's just like he began. Back in verse 5, he says, To which of the angels did he ever say? Now to verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said? So he's bringing this to a conclusion. He's still comparing to angels. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110 Verse 1. So to conclude, he's going to emphasize the son's exaltation, his main point. That's his primary point. And to do so, he's going to use the foundational passage of the Old Testament and of the whole book of Hebrews. Psalm 110. Someone said, it's overstated, but you get the point that the letter of Hebrews is really just an exposition of Psalm 110. <laughs> and in many ways it is. We're going to see this psalm keep repeating and repeating. He goes to this psalm because it is the unique passage in all of Scripture. Do you know this? Do you know Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage by the New Testament writers? Of any passage. And there's a reason for that. Whereas other Old Testament passages like we've been looking at, right, Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 45, while those passages have a historical reference, they refer to the Davidic kings and then by typology they, they, they point to Christ. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of those. That's how most of the Old Testament works when pointing to Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment. This passage, this psalm, is the only place, the only song that speaks exclusively about the Son. Did you know that? It has no historical reference. It is only about the Son. It's just remarkable. It's breathtaking, this passage. We don't have time to go back and read it. We're going to see this psalm several times in the book. But it's a psalm, David wrote it, Remember, David's the king of Israel. There's nobody higher than David when he wrote this. And the, what he says in the first line is, Yahweh said to my Lord. Yahweh said to my Lord. Who's David's Lord? He doesn't have a Lord. He is king. That is humanly. Who's he speaking? Who's Yahweh speaking to? The Son, the Messiah, David's Lord. David 
David is led in on or given this direct speech from the Father to the Son. It's the only place we have in the Bible like that. That's why this psalm is so exquisite and unique. Yahweh said to my Lord, and then he's going to tell us what he said. Remember, remember this, is the, this is the passage that Jesus quoted and pointed to when those religious leaders were asking him questions, trying to trip him up. Right? They kept trying to trip him up by asking him Bible trivia kind of questions, like, can you answer this one? And he'd answer it. And, and then he said, now let me ask you a question. Whose son is the Messiah? <laughs> oh, that's easy. It's David's son. Really? Then why, in Psalm 110, does David call him Lord if he's his son? Get back to you on that one. <laughs> they didn't know. They were stumped. Yes, he's the son of David, but so much greater. He's the son of God. So that's the psalm. Anyway, this is a, a great psalm that we're going to see. But the first line of the psalm that David hears the father say to the son, Yahweh say to his Lord, sit at my right hand. He didn't say that to any angel. Never did he say that to him. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what's it mean? Well, we saw this back in verse 3. Remember, this was his point. After he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The son is given the place of preeminence and ultimate authority over all things. Not an angel. The son is given the place of preeminence. That's to be at God's right hand. As I said a couple weeks ago, it's not a second throne. It's the same throne. At the right hand is the position of preeminence and ultimate authority. He shares God's power without limit. And that enthronement, as we learn back in verse 3, follows the son's atoning work. He made purification of sins. And then he sat down. The father says, sit. Sit until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Don't miss that word until. The son is seated. He's enthroned. The father is putting enemies under his feet until that happens. That's going to be consummated. His reign. We live in this time. The son is on the throne. He is seated as our high priest. He is king. And he's going to consummate it. Oh, don't, don't, don't be found in enemy. He's going to put enemies under his feet. This son. And then by way of contrast, he finishes out. He never said this to angels. Sit at my right hand. Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits? He's back to the angels again. So angels are not are but servants who help those about to inherit or enter this salvation inheritance. You see the contrast? He wants you to feel the contrast. That's what we've been doing all through this. The son and angels. The son is the king who is seated at God's right hand. This is what God said to him. Angels are yet servants who are sent out to serve. To render help or service for the sake of those who will inherit this great salvation or inheritance that the son has purchased. Now, his, his main point in verse 14 is not to give us fully a, a doctrine of angels or all that angels do or all the ways they help us. His main point is just to show the contrast. The son is the king who sits. Angels are just servants who are sent out to help. Those who will inherit salvation. So his main point is just you feel the contrast between the son and the angels. Don't ever confuse them. 
And yet, verse 14 is really an encouraging and quite incredible truth. Did you know this? God dispatches angels to serve us as we run this race with endurance headed toward our inheritance. Literally, it says that. It says, for the sake of those about to inherit salvation. We're on the road. (laughs) And he dispatches angels to help. They serve. He doesn't tell us how, but it's really remarkable. Now, that's that's what's going to lead him next week, chapter 2, to his first exhortation of the book. If this is true of the Son and all his glory and who he is, and angels are but servants, and that first revelation, you might say, the law was mediated through angels, pay attention to this revelation brought by the Son. Are you paying attention or are you drifting? So that's where we're going to go next week. But I, I, I just finished. I returned that question. Who, who is Jesus Christ? That's where I started. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us. He's God, the Son, the eternal Son, who took on flesh. He really became a human being to be our Savior, to make atonement for our sin, to pay for our sin on the cross, to conquer death, and who is now exalted to God's right hand as king and priest. That's who he is. What do you say about him? Who do you say he is? As you read this, do you have a sense of awe, reverence, trust, love for him? The angels worship him. Do you? Is the son, Jesus, is he large in your life or really small? Like on the periphery. Do do you worship him with delight as the primary purpose of your life? Or do you belittle him? Or neglect him? Who is he? How do you value him? Oh, I pray you're a worshiper of the Son and you have a refuge in him today. Let me pray for us and then we're going to sing one more time of our fairest Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for showing us the Son, your Son. whom the angels worship so much greater and who is our Savior and High Priest. You have given him for us. Oh, may we love him, adore him, live for him, and trust him alone today. Magnify the Son to us. We ask this in his name. Amen.